Good morning, everyone. Oh, you guys can do better than that. I'm like, yes, good morning, everyone. All right. JP asked for a report, so I gotta, you know, gotta give him a good report. Hey, so how many of you like the Celtics? Yeah. How many of you saw the game last Sunday? Saw that last Sunday night. How many of you were disappointed that we lost that game? All right. So here's the secret. I am was born and raised in California, Los Angeles. So thank you for the, for the one person out there. And of course, I love the Lakers. I mean, I, I was Kobe Bryant every day and all day. And have been living in New England for about five years. I love the Red Sox. I can even do the Bruins. I can do the Patriots. But about 10 years ago, the Celtics destroyed the Lakers. And even though we've kind of redeemed ourselves before then, um, some friends and I, last Friday, uh, before the game, after the game was over, we were watching TV and we found out there would be a game set. And just like any normal friends, we decided, hey, wouldn't it be cool to go to the playoff game and, and, and like be there? And I'm thinking, well, this is the Celtics. But, you know, it's all about the journey. It's all about hanging out with people. It's all about the community. So we did what any people would do. We went to Ticketmasters and we got tickets and it was really expensive. And we literally got the last ticket in the place. Like literally the floors here, my seat, I could touch the ceiling. That's how far up that we were in there. And so, so we're going to go all out. So we're looking for t-shirts. So I get on Amazon and I find some Celtic t-shirts. Yes, even I wore a Celtic t-shirt. And, and so we get there and we're thinking, well, what about parking? Parking is going to be atrocious at TD Garden. So I had the broad idea. Well, it's free parking on Sundays. So I'm going to wake up really early in the morning. I'm going to go park my car down there. And then I'm going to take the T back to Somerville. So when the game's over, we can hop in the car and we can go. So that plan was executed. Then we all met up, we had dinner, we went to the game, and then as you know, we did not win that game. And as I know, Bostonians, when you guys lose, man, you guys lose. Like, I wanna say at least half the stadium left, and there was still two minutes on the clock. And so as we were rushing down the stairs and we get in the car, and I'm thinking, you know, we're seven minutes away from Somerville, let's just get out of here gridlock traffic and we were there for another hour and as I was sitting there and I was contemplating and I was thinking like who bright idea was it to spend $300 on one ticket to sit in traffic to have the Celtics lose this game now to sit in another hour in traffic watching Bostonians get drunk and yell at each other well, that actually, that was actually part of the, the best part of the night is having to talk to you But I digress. But it was being in the car with my friends, just thinking about that whole, that whole process of getting the tickets and getting the shirt and going to the game and, and, and screaming and yelling and, and not knowing what the outcome is, but knowing that you're, you're part of a community and you're, you're in a place and, and it feels good to be with people that love you and that care about you. See, I grew up in a single family home with my mom, my sister, and my grandmother. My mom worked the graveyard shifts at the postal service, 
So she worked for kind of the bulk mail. So the big packages you receive, she would work overnight and would sort them and, and supervise a team that did that. And so my grandmother had to raise my sister and I. And one thing that I remember so clearly about my grandmother is that Granny really loved the Lord. That's what I call my grandmother. It's Granny. Now, she didn't just simply love the Lord on Sunday mornings where she just went to church and, and, and did that. Like, she, like, really loved the Lord. Like, she would have collard greens and fried chicken and baked pies for Sunday morning. She would mentor the young girls. She would direct the choir. She was helping out with the usher board. I mean, there was nothing that Granny would not do for the church. And then throughout the week, she would read scripture meditate on it, pray for people, and actually live the life that we should be living as Christians. And fortunately enough for me, I went to the church with her, at least until I was nine. Then it kind of all stopped. You see, it was May of 15th of 1993, and Granny had just finished cleaning the house, as she usually do on a Saturday. I remember being in the family room, sitting on the couch, my mom is here, the TV's on, and Granny comes in from the kitchen throughout the hallway. She sits down and kind of takes a break from the housework. And as always, I turn to her and I normally give her one of my million dollar smiles that I do. All right, maybe half a million dollar smile that I do. And I normally wait for her, her glowing face to kind of smile back at me, kind of like in, in an affirmation way. Except this time there was something that was different. When I turned over to look at her, her eyes kind of had rolled back into her head, and her lips started turning blue and purple, and her body kind of was slouching down onto the floor. And what I didn't know then, that I know now, is that Granny had a massive heart attack. Now, before you get all sad and thinking she died, she did not. They took her to the hospital. She had triple bypass surgery. They implanted a defibrillator and a pacemaker. And Granny's heart was as new again. Bad news. A week later, she had a massive stroke. She was unable to speak, sing, or use the right side of her body ever again. And after remaining in the hospital for months, she was discharged and we brought her back home. And Granny quickly realized that the mobility, the speaking, the activities that she was accustomed to could afford her no longer. She will not sing again. She will not drive again. She will not dress herself again. She will not cook fried chicken again. The life that she knew before her heart attack was gone, but the faith that she had post her heart attack was the same. And although it was difficult and she would cry endlessly sometimes, she never lost her faith. Now, as we look at our scripture today, we see something similar here in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews has penned a letter to the Christian Jewish people living in Jerusalem who has left Judaism. 
So these are the Jewish Christians who up until this point was part of Judaism, but now had accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. So now they realize that they have grace and that they uh, are living through liberation and they have faith. They're no longer under the Jewish law, so they can do fun things like eat bacon. And I just said bacon and I just heard one like, you guys don't like bacon? I mean, that's like a huge thing for kids. So their faith had, had been liberated, but the writer was concerned that as they were on this journey, being newbies in Christ, they were being afflicted by those who had not accepted Christ as their savior. And so the writer was concerned that if he did not encourage them, then they, being new newbies, new Christians in Christ, that they would end up rebelling against God, that they would turn back. Now, today, maybe you don't have an illness like my grandmother, or maybe you're not a, you know, a newbie in Christ, maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. But we have other things and other sins and hindrance that trip us up on our walk with Christ, on our journey. So the purpose of this letter was to encourage Christ followers to persevere, keep going, don't give up, don't lose heart. Let's face it, things happen in our lives. Divorce, marriages fall apart, kids lost, cancer, wars. There's things that affect us some more than others. So the writer is here saying us, he wants to encourage us to persevere because when we have these weights on our journey that we carry, it causes us to miss out of what God has for us on our journey. It interferes with our ability to pray, to sing songs, to be in community with others without being distracted, to be present. Have you ever been in a meeting or talking to your wife or your kids and you are physically there, but your mind is somewhere else? You're thinking about the bills you have to pay. You're thinking about the argument that you have. You're thinking about the chores that you have to do. You're thinking about the phone call you have to return. What is it like to just to be present in the moment and experiencing what God has for you? So since trial, tribulations, it comes in many different shapes and sizes. The writer wants us to get a few disciplines that will help us. So immediately in Hebrews 1, it says that therefore, since we have such a great cloud surrounding us. Now, I'm gonna say it another way. There are people that are circling around you, that are cheering you on, that are encouraging you, not as spectators, but as champions, because they have been where you are and they have come out the other side. Then the writer backs up this claim and said, if you don't even take my word for it, just look at the scriptures, look at Hebrews 11, when we read about the heroes of faith. We read about how faith, Moses led the people. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham, and Sarah had Isaac, sacrificed Isaac for the Lord's sake. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob blessed Joseph's sons. 
The list goes on and on that they have faith, but it doesn't stop there. They had something else in common. They recognized that even in their sin of unbelief, God could still use them. Even if they had sinned and come short of the glory of God, but yet repented, their faith was strong enough that even in their unbelief that they could be used by God. They accepted the call that God had placed on their life. They understood that they were not alone. Hebrews 11:13 says that all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not give up, they did not turn back, but they persevered. If we stop and took a moment, I'm sure we can think of someone in our lives who has suffered, but yet kept going, kept the faith, didn't throw in the towel, didn't tap out, didn't give in. Now, knowing that there are people who are cheering us on should provide some sense of hope and encouragement, some sense of, all right, you know, our best days are yet to come kind of thing. But the writer wants to give us disciplines of how we ourselves can overcome things. So the first thing he says that we have to throw off any hindrance in the easily sin that we find ourselves entangled in. Now, it may seem obvious that we ought to throw off sin, but sin requires radical treatment. It must be resisted immediately. It's like a red light. When you see a red light, you should stop. Not a yellow light, because when I see a yellow light, it means I need to speed up and get through the light before the red light comes. Don't do that with sin. So it may, be, it may seem obvious that we should get rid of sin. The Hebrew Christians were in imminent danger of committing, if some of them not had already committed, rebelling back to Judaism, or worse, rebelling against God. How many times do not want to show a hands? I said this to youth once and they raised their hand, not a good, not a good lesson. How many times and how many ways have you rebelled against God? Now, I'm not talking about the cycles and murder and rape and, and kidnap. And, and I'm talking about, what about gossip? What about lying? What about lust? What about not paying your tithes? What about backbiting? What about the thoughts that go into your head for the people that you do love, but you don't like at that moment? How many of us rebelled against God, rebelled against the love and the forgiveness that he wants us to show to other people? Do you know how that feels? Have you rebelled against God? Have you had your faith shaken to the core? Maybe something catastrophic has happened in your life. In the early part of 2017, I was completing my pastoral clinical training, um, and I was a chaplain at Brigham and Women's Hospital. I was on call this particular day, and I got paged uh, to do a spiritual consultation for a patient that was on the cancer ward. Because of health information privacy, known as HIPAA, we will refer to this patient as the professor. See, the professor had studied and graduated with his PhD from a very prominent university overseas. He was now a professor at another prestigious university here in New England. The professor was young, 
recently married, and was a proud father of a new baby boy. The professor was prolific in his study of philosophy and theology. In fact, he knew the Lord, he loved the Lord, and he taught his college students to love the Lord as well. In fact, when I met him on his journey, his faith, his passion, his teaching was bleak. You see, the professor's cancer was no longer in remission. And there was nothing left to be done but to page the chaplain to assist him in making plans, getting his affairs in order. There was no words that I could speak that had not been expressed already. As I sat there and was just simply in his presence, trying to soak in whatever it was in the atmosphere that was going on in the room at that time. It was so quiet I could hear his, his heart pounding. I could see the sweat that was coming off of his forehead. He was looking death in the eye. I lent him my shoulder to cry on, my hand in prayer, and I reminded him that Paul said that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it onto the day of Jesus Christ to completion. His faith was shaken and he began to question everything. The choices that he made, just getting married, just having a new baby boy. And one of the things that he wanted to know was, Pastor Marcus, my son, my son, I advised him that although he may not be on his son's journey to watch him drive his first car, go to the prom, get married, have his first kids, but doesn't mean that he can't set up a way to see his son. And so I advised him to take a video camera and to videotape himself. The words that you want to take part, part on your son, when he does go to the prom, or when he does ask a girl to marry him, or when he's struggling in life, or when he turns 21. Like set up a documentary of the things that you wish that you were there for, because your journey is coming to an end, but your son's journey is just beginning. You see, we can't control what happens on our journey. We can't control the curveballs, the hurdles, the roadblocks, the potholes, but we can control our response to them. We are being advised to throw off everything and anything that hinders us. But don't forget, the author is giving us a firm warning once again about sin. The sin that we so easily get entangled in. I mean, let's face it, we're humans. We get our soul entangled in sins. We, and, and it says easily entangled. So it is putting an emphasis on the sins that you easily find yourself going back to. Only you know what that is. Whether drugs, alcohol, disobedience, whatever it is. Only you know the sins that you, that you wrestle with that causes hiccups on your journey. Sin is an easy thing to approach us. 
We carry it as if it were on the journey with us. But yet at the same time, sin is the most dangerous thing to have on your journey. It is our spiritual enemy. It will stop you in your tracks. It doesn't matter how big or how small it is. Sin is sin. And if we love God, we want to be on a journey where we fight against sin. We want to take primitive action to avoid, deal with, and address it. To not cover it up, to not pretend like it doesn't exist, but to wrestle with it, to acknowledge it, to validate that, yes, this is what I struggle with. But by the grace of God and by people in our community, it will be held at bay because we will persevere even in our darkest hours. You see, we have to set ourselves up to run the race that is marked out for us. We're either doing things that get us closer to God or away from God, but we are never stagnant with God. I'm going to say that again. We are doing things in your journey, whether you are a person that prays in the morning or in the evening, whether you're the kind of person that goes to church every Sunday or even just once a month. However you connect with God, through nature, through music, through his word, through praying, you need to keep that up. Because if you're not doing things to get you closer to God, you are slowly slipping away from God. I've had so many students say, well, you know, I, where's, where's God at when I needed him? You know, I pray and I don't feel like he's there. And I always remind students, God is right where you left him. When you're not doing things to get close with him, you are slowly slipping away from him. And then when you reach out and you try to, like, where's the Lord that I serve? He's right there. He's around you. He's loving you. He's in you. Things that bring us closer to God is a personal relationship with Christ. Access to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The gifts of grace, love, and mercy. A forgiveness and restoration that come from above. I like the way Limitations 3 puts it. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope is in him. The most powerful motive for laying our sin aside is that it takes up energy that should be used to praise, thank, and glorify God. Have you ever been running or carrying something heavy or doing something that you felt exhausted and you had to sit down, take a breath, get a drink of water? That's what sin does. It slowly takes up energy that can be used for other things. It slowly kills you. It slowly takes away your desire to love God. It takes away your desire to forgive others. It takes away that pause that you have before you go off on someone. It takes away that desire to send that email and put it in draft instead of sending it immediately. It causes anger to be at the forefront. It causes a lying tongue to be at the forefront. That's what sin does. It kills you slowly, and it slowly takes you away from the Lord. Sorry, I'm a Baptist preacher, so sometimes we sweat when we preach. 
So the writer gives us another discipline. So throw off the sin, get rid of the hindrance, but he reveals that we have to persevere some way. And the main way that he tells us is to persevere, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. Seven years ago, in November of 2011, I embarked upon the journey of a lifetime. I traveled to Nigeria to minister and assist missionaries at my former church. You may or may not recall at that time in the headlines, there were bombings, robberies, and the slaying of Christians in Africa. And you're probably wondering amid all the violence, why I would ever want to return. Well, to be honest with you, I didn't, except God invited me. And by God, I mean the church elders and the senior pastor. Now, unlike the previous year that I was in Africa, this was a time of peace in the land. To my surprise, I was greeted at the airport by military personnel and called by my name from locals who remembered me from my previous visit. As I walked through the town and saw different ministry sites, I could feel the presence of Christ. Some of my most amazing memories was sitting and having lunch with two Muslims and being able to hold and pray for one of their young girls, uh, newborn babies, that has a life expectancy of less than 45 years living in the land. See, all throughout my journey, I was searching for why God called me back to Nigeria. At one point, I wondered if I was playing Russian roulette with my life. Then I continued to read about the people of Exodus, his Israelites in Exodus 16, and realized that God was calling me to reconnect with him in a way that I had never connected before. It was merely the next stop on my journey. As God was creating something in my life, I realized that I had taken my eyes off of Christ. See, things happen when our eyes are fixed on Jesus. But when we have our eyes fixed on ourselves, whether it's the ambition of a new job, whether it's a new car or a new house, or maybe some great achievement of getting a degree or writing a, a book, those things are great, but it should always be focused on Jesus. And when we take our eyes off of ourselves, and from personal testimony, when I took my eyes off of myself and I put my eyes back on Jesus, I realized that God wanted to create it to create something in me that I could not create in myself. How many missed opportunities are there when our eyes are focused on everything except Christ? It's when we set our sights on Jesus it's when we have that reality check that Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. If we are serious about running this race with Jesus, we must keep our eyes on him. Remember, Jesus had his journey here on earth in the flesh. He himself became nothing, became a servant. He became human. He experienced death not 
any death. Death on the cross. For the joy of saving us, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus has shown us the way, and he has demonstrated how we ought to live and our attitude should be on our journey. He has set the pace, so why not fix our eyes on Jesus? I mean, when you think about the Jewish Christians, they were newbies in Christ, so it makes sense for the writer. And just a quick caveat, I'm saying the writer because we don't know who wrote Hebrews. We have scholars, ancient scholars, that believe it was Paul or Paulus. However, modern scholars, which I not necessarily wouldn't call myself a scholar, more like a young theologian, would agree that there's more evidence to prove that Paul did not write this instead of more evidence that he did. And so for the sake of argument, I'm referring to the writer just simply as the writer. So that wasn't in my sermon, so now I got lost in my sermon. <laughs> so this is why when you make caveats, you really should put it in your sermon. So why would we not fix our eyes on Jesus? So if the Jewish Christians, it makes sense. They're newbies in Christ. And so unless you are a newbie in Christ, then yes, you, you tend to take your eyes off the Lord. But if you've been walking with Christ for a long time and you know how good God is, why do we continue taking our eyes off the Lord? See, this is what I don't get about the Israelites. They prayed and prayed and prayed that God would deliver them. Then God rose up Moses, killed off Pharaoh's men, split the Red Sea, then they crossed over, Pharaoh's men died in the Red Sea, then they still was complaining and rebelling against God, that there was no water, and then there was no food, and then they didn't have direction. But yet, they fixed their eyes on Jesus until they got what they wanted, and then all of a sudden, it was all about me and what I wanted. I mean, we even see that with the bread when God said, when you wake up in the morning, there shall be dew on the grass. And when they woke up and they saw the dew dried up, there was manna. And he said, take as much manna as you need, but don't take any for the other day. But what did they do? They realized, oh, well, the Sabbath is tomorrow. The Lord doesn't work on the Sabbath. So let's take what we need for today, and then let's take what we need for tomorrow, and then we'll deal with the rest later. Disobedience. When they woke up, they didn't have manna. They had worms. How many times will God bless us, guide us, direct us, but yet we constantly take our eyes off the Lord? That's me. So I'm preaching to the choir here. Like I constantly take my eyes off of the Lord. There is intimacy in connecting with God on our journey. He provides us a hope that we can't get anywhere else. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scoring its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. One of the fundamentals of the Christian journey isn't how you start your journey, meaning it doesn't matter what, when, and how you start your journey, is that, that Christ is walking with you on that journey, that you met him somewhere along the way. So less how you start, but has everything to do with how you end. Because Christ tells us that we ought to finish well. We ought to embrace the hurdles, the hills, the valleys that come our way. 
Jesus makes it clear that those who endure to the end will be saved. Not everyone in the Bible made it into the hall of faith. We could actually argue that there kind of is like a hall of shame because there are men and women who ought to be in Hebrews 11 that are noticeably missing. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I love this verse. The writer is basically saying, if you can't throw off the hindrance, if you are still struggling with the sin, if you can't persevere, fine, but consider the cross. Remember the cross. Fix your eyes on Jesus and remember the cross. If you can't remember anything else, fix your eyes on Jesus and remember the cross. Consider Jesus before you give up. Consider the man whose blood was shed on Calvary before you throw in the towel. Consider Jesus dying on the cross when you are weary. Consider fixing your eyes on the cross when you're feeling lost. The cross represents more than unspeakable pain, humiliation, and suffering. And ironically, it is the symbol of infinite love. At the cross, Jesus won our salvation which is free, but certainly not cheap. And in the cross lies the power both to liberate hearts that have been caught up in unseemingly unbreakable cycles of sin, defeat, and weariness. Have you ever had a, a moment or season in your life when you just keep doing the same old things over and over and you can't quite figure out why you keep falling back in the same hole? Fix your eyes on Jesus because that's what sin does. It's the same pathway, but sin likes to dress it up. Whether it looks great from this side. Oh, yeah, you fell, you fell before, but just, just try one more time. All right, so it's been 10 times, but I, I swear to you, the 11th time you walk down here, you will not fall in that same pothole. And then 11th time turns to the 50th time and then a hundredth time. And before you know it, you're 20, you're 50, you're 60, you're 75 years old, and you're still are in this path, this defeating path and cycle, and, and not getting out of it, and you're not quite sure what's going on. Stop looking at yourself. Fix your eyes on the Lord. In Christ lies our hope. So when we hope in Christ, and we fix our eyes on the Lord, and we remember what he did for us on Calvary, change begin to happen. Relationships begin to be molded into healthiness. Marriages begin to start to be fixed. Finances may not be where you want them, but, then, but you realize that God supplies your need. Maybe not your bank account, but your needs are being supplied by God. Families and jobs, kids and church, things become alive because you're no longer concentrating on the trials, on the cancer, on the stroke. You're not concentrating on that. It's still there. The bills are still there. The cancer still may be there. You're still looking for a job. That is a real reality. But how you respond to the joy of the Lord in those moments 
is how we embrace our journey. My grandmother taught me to look at the cross for my pers perseverance. And from that perspective, you can be reminded that Jesus is a pioneer and perfecter of faith. It's amazing that on our journey, whatever hurdles, whatever jumps we have to get through, whatever struggles we have to go through, Jesus is always the answer. From a personal perspective, my granny's discipleship ended at nine for me. But she planted a seed so deep in my soul that it continues to grow every single day. Where I accepted Christ at 12, I was licensed to preach at 13, and I was ordained at 15. Granny planted the seed, but God gave the increase. This was the message my granny was relaying before her massive heart attack and stroke. And as you know, as a result of that, she was paralyzed and couldn't speak. And my granny remained in that way, paralyzed in that condition for 10 years. When death was near, my mother contacted me as I was now a freshman in college living in Seattle. And she said, Granny will not leave. She won't depart until she sees you one last time. And so I remember it was a Saturday morning. I took the first flight out. I got there that Saturday night. I went to her bedside. And I whispered, it's OK. It's OK. I'm going to be OK. Early, early, early that Sunday morning, it was a beautiful Sunday morning. The sun was shining, the birds were chirping, but it was beautiful because my granny met her maker. Her journey ended. Through pain and sorrow and affliction, she still kept fixing her eyes on Jesus. <clears throat> For 10 years, no more frying chicken, no more driving, no more singing, no more dressing yourself but her eyes was still fixed on Jesus. And to be honest with you, when I saw her that Saturday night, I was at her bedside, it was almost as if she was looking through me and was the Lord was present in that room. That when she died and I came back that Sunday, I kid you not, there was a smile on her face. I had the joy of doing the eulogy at her funeral and I remember the funeral director, after the parting view, invited me to close the casket. And I still today remember that, ah, oh, this is just her body. Her soul is in the presence of the Lord. It reminded me of what Paul told Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who longed for his appearance. Friends, if Jesus, who died on the cross for my sins and your sins, if that same Jesus worked for granny, I am certainly assured that that same Jesus will work for you. Let's pray. 
Well, gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we glorify your name today. We thank you for allowing your word to go forth. I ask, Lord, that as I preach today, that it would not be my words that they hear, but it would be your words and your face that they saw through me. For Lord, I don't know what anyone is going through in this room, but what I do know is that you are a God who loves and who heals and who cares for us, that loves us so much that you sent your son to die on the cross, that loves us so much that you call us by name, individually, you call us by name. So for those who are struggling, whether with illness or family issues or relationship issues or finances, whatever it is, Lord, I say that you touch, that you touch in a way that you've never touched before, that they would fix their eyes on you, that they would persevere until the very end to hear you say, servant, well done. And in Jesus' name do we pray, amen.